You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So one of the things that I wanted to do with this conference was not just to inform us about what CRT is, what social justice is, and how it is infiltrating uh, the culture and the society, but also one of the things I specifically asked Virgil for was explain to us how it is affecting the church, how it is getting into the church, and how we stop it. And then how it is that pastors and teachers and leaders and people who are alert to what's going on, how is it that they serve to guard the flock against this? Because one of the, if, this, if these things are threats, and they are, given that they're threats, I guess I should say, and, and they are, how do we protect ourselves against it? How do we protect the churches against it? How do we protect the flock against it? Because that's really a key, and that is what Virgil is going to address in these last two sessions. So please welcome Virgil Walker. I'm grateful to be before you uh, once again, and, and uh, appreciate the clarity of of uh, what the next two sessions will entail. Let me do a little bit of, of housekeeping for us as we've got now something up on a website and um, all kinds of things for just thinking. Dal and I don't do what we do alone. Uh, there's a team of people who are amazingly talented at their, in their area of expertise who help us uh, to do what we do uh, at Just Thinking. I see uh, Miss Rachel all the way in the back. Her husband, Nathan, or Nate, which, which uh, he prefers to go by, are here. They came out to us uh, from Washington. And so we're, we're pleased about a five, six-hour drive. If you'll give them a hand. She's right at the back door. And Everything that you see from Daryl and me in social media, we, we don't touch it. Um, they do. She does. She uh, has, has an assist. Her name is Esther Bills. Uh, they, those ladies take care of everything in social media for us. They have us uh, on social media daily. Now, J- Daryl's job is to do that, but he's doing that for another organization, and he's working with, with GTY doing that. But everything related to Just Thinking, um, Rachel takes care of. And, and again, her hus- husband, Nathan, is just gracious. They've got a you know, number of kids and, and mamas at home handling that, but she's also in her spare time taking care of what we're doing. So thank you so much for loaning her to us in the way that you do and with the help that she provides. We're, we're, we're tremendously appreciative. We also, again, have a larger team in, in, in the case that uh, the rest of the team happens to catch this live stream uh, and see that we mentioned Rachel and not them. I thought I'd at least take a moment <laughs> and mention their efforts. We have Charles Simpson. He takes care of, he takes uh, great care of our website design and all the things pertaining to that. We've got Jacob Arthur who handles everything for us legally. Uh, Nick, so he'll be talking to you, I'm sure. Yeah, I'll have him. <laughs> Our people get a hold of your people. We'll make that work. Uh, Nick Siebler, who t- handles all of our accounting work. Uh, Jennifer Bell, communications. Dwayne Atkinson, we mentioned him. He's the executive producer that actually put Daryl and me together in the first place. Joe, Joe Zarati, we call him Joe Z. He does everything graphically for us. All the cool, uh, every, every episode where you see some really cool design or, or some cool graphic, uh, it's, it's a combination of Daryl and I coming up with a topic. And da- Daryl is, I, Daryl's a renaissance man. He's very uh, creative and artistic on that end of the spectrum, me not so much, but uh, Daryl will get with, with Josie and create an idea or a graphic design and come up with something that's really eye-popping and catching, and it's incredibly helpful. But that's our team. We are a 501c3, and uh, man, we'd, we'd encourage you to, to jump on our website, check out things there. All of it's free of charge to you, resources. I'm going to mention some of, those, some of those things that will be helpful to you in the days to come, but we, we definitely would love your support, but we appreciate your prayers. Uh, as we press on to do what we do. Um, Daryl and I were looking at our calendar. I think we're somewhere every month of this year almost, uh, except for the holidays. And uh, it's, 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 uh, it's exciting. It's, it's um, uh, something that we're humbled by. Uh, at the same time, it's something that we ask for your prayers regarding so that we uh, stay, uh, stay strong and, and maintain uh, a path that continues to honor God. So those things I wanted to briefly mention 
Uh, just by way of kind of maybe some, some housekeeping on our part. Uh, this session is called Marxism, Social Justice in the Church. And uh, to the point that Pastor Jim made, he really wanted me to begin, begin honing things into, hey, how does this thing enter the church? Where is its trajectory? Then in the, in the, last, session, in the last session, I'll walk through, um, you know, how, how, do, how do we guard against this in the church? And so uh, how, do, how do shepherds in particular, leaders in particular, uh, begin protecting uh, the flock? And, and I, truth be told, this is, how, this is one of the ways that you, that you do it. You know, I'll, I'll go into greater detail, but simply to say um, most pastors who are faithful to the text of Scripture are, are doing exposition. They're going through a verse by verse by verse by verse. And so when you see things in culture that kind of rear their ugly heads, it's great uh, if that pastor has connection to a, either a subject matter expert on the issue or someone who understands it and maybe has studied it. We often, Daryl and I often hear pastors say, I wanted to address the topic or the subject, but I don't have the time to go and, and get a library like what, what Daryl has or what you guys are putting together in the way of information to give to my people. So often, many pastors will grab a, a, a podcast episode from our podcast and do a listen, grab notes, and then go and do a study to bring to people. So there are a number of different ways that pastors and leaders can, can understand these issues with, without having to be a subject matter expert in the area uh, and can provide spaces either on a Sunday evening service or maybe a Wednesday service or even in a forum like this where they bring the church together and we tackle the issue over the course of a two-day intensive so that you're equipped and know how to address those things. Again, the next session, I'll go into a little bit of a deeper dive regarding that. But for this one, uh, my task is to unpack the Marxism social justice in the church. And you've heard us talk about the landscape of current culture. Um, as I listen to what we've, we've talked about, discussed, and looked around and examined, um, I, I think about the story of, of Jesus, right, as he's gathering his disciples together and, and he's preparing them as they go out and, and preach the gospel. He's, there's a warning that he provides for them in Matthew 10, verses 16 through 20, where Jesus says the following to, to the disciples. He says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged out to the governors for the king's sake and for my sake to bear witness before them to the Gentiles. Then they will deliver you over. But do not be anxious for how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not for you who speak, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. And the beauty of that verse is to know that we don't have to know everything and, and, and be you know, knowledgeable about all things, but that we can, we can rely, once given the information, we can rely on the Spirit to help us to say the right thing. I want to address one more thing. I had a great conversation with, 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 uh, with my brother Peter in the back, and we were talking about uh, issues related to uh, apologetics uh, and evangelism, right? Evangelism. And apologetics. Uh, there, are, there are a number of people in, in particular uh, camps who, who see these two things as, as completely polar opposites, right? You're either an apologist or you're an evangelist. Well, either you're an evangelist or you're an apologist. And I don't think scripture provides that option, right? I, I think we need to know about both. Scripture definitely tells us, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, to tell, to, tells us to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. The scripture goes on to, to in, instruct you that we're to do so with gentleness and respect. But scripture also says that, that, that the power for change and transformation, I, I quoted to you from, from uh, Romans 1.16, right? And, and it told you about how the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So the, the Bible is clear. It gives you a, a both and, not an either or, but the power is in the gospel. It's not in your apologetic. The power is not in your ability to know and dissect culture and understand these issues and, and be a, a master of swords, if you will, for the purpose of, of, of winning an argument uh, and, and planting your flag. The goal of the, of the gospel, therefore, is to, is, to, is to proclaim in an effort to see the Spirit of God move on the heart of the individual to see heart transformation take place. And that may require you to be effective in apologetics. You may need to know these ideas that we've shared with you for the purpose of engaging in conversation, but they're always used 
for the purpose of a deeper conversation about the gospel. Because that's where true transformation takes place. It was great to have that conversation for us to engage in that and talk about that. And my hope would be in your hearing, you would hear, you would hear us strike the right balance between the two of those particular issues. However, like many of you, as I read the headlines, I can't help but be concerned about the state of our country, the divisiveness of politics, and the issues surrounding ethnicity. Many in our nation are calling for justice. And it's with that in mind that I thought it might be helpful at this time when we talk about uh, Marxism and social justice. I really want to focus on the justice component. You've heard Dow just you know, spend two sessions unpacking Marxism and its origins and how they've infected every aspect of, of CRT. I, I want to focus on the component of social justice as it moves into our modern day uh, uh, experience. In fact, it's the Biden administration currently who seeks to to implement social justice in every facet of American life. From uh, when, when you when you saw the the rollout for the vaccine, they wanted to make sure that that blacks and other uh, underprivileged uh, minority groups uh, were able to receive health benefits first. You're seeing that not only in, in, in vaccinations, but in other areas as well. Everything from economics um, to, to issues re- related to to health care. Uh, you even have situations where people are calling for environmental social justice. What, what is that? And, and why is it necessary? All of it is, 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 is pushed through the lens of social justice. So I think it would be important for you to understand a little bit more about the... I'll, I'll focus this talk a little bit more on the justice component, if you will. Our, in our time together, I want to raise the question about social justice and compare it to biblical justice. Frederick Hayek, born May 8th, of 1899. He was an economist and a philosopher. Hayek was known for classic economic liberalism and and liberalism in the the classic sense, right? I I could spend time there, but I I won't. Trust me on this. You'll you'll understand his his worldview when you hear uh, what what it is I'll say about him. He had this to say about social justice. He said this, quote, I am certain that nothing has done so much to destroy the juridical safeguards, juridical, big fancy word for legal, the legal safeguards of individual freedom as a striving after this miracle of social justice. Frederick Hayek received the Nobel Peace Prize in economics and science in 1974. In his book, Individualism and Economic Order, Hayek said the following, quote, there's all the difference in the world between treating people equally and attempting to make them equal. I want you to hear that. There's all the difference in the world between treating people equally and attempting to make them equal. While the first is a condition of a free society, the second means, as de Tocqueville describes it, is a form of servitude. When when we aim to, and that's the end of the quote, when when, when we aim to to, uh, make people equal rather than treat them equal, what we're looking at is an an outcome. We're looking at something economically speaking. And with with particular note with, with Frederick Hayek, he's an economist. The issue of social justice was first one of economics. It was the idea of of seeing those who were oppressed and figuring out a way to make sure that they were able to take from their oppressors so that things could be equal. And as he's examining what he understands as as the basic ideas that surround economics, he's got a problem. At the time, this wasn't, this wasn't focused on blackness and whiteness per se. It was focused on social classes. And he saw the same problems in his day, which is why I spent time saying that he was born in 1899 so that you could see this, was, this has been a problem for quite some time. However, those modern day social justicians, understanding the impact of social justice, historically speaking, they seem undeterred in their efforts to replace equality with equity. Again, quoting from Hayek, he would say this, the idea of social justice is that the state could treat different people unequally in order to make them equal, end quote. Another American economist, Dr. Thomas Sowell, in his book, The Quest for Cosmic Justice, he writes this, quote, a society that puts equality and the sense of equality of outcome ahead of freedom will end up with neither equality nor freedom. 
He says the use of force to achieve equality will destroy freedom and the force introduced for good purposes will, in, will end up in the hands of people who use it to promote their own self-interest, end quote. I think Dr. Dr. Sowell has it correct that, that neither equality nor freedom are the end result of social justice. So what, what is social justice? Often defined social justice is actually based upon the intentions of the person using the term rather than the actual mission or goal. So my, my point is this, when you hear someone use the term social justice, more times than not, what they mean is their own personal kind of arbitrary idea about what will make things right. You know, in their mind, their thought is, well, well this would be fair. And they're doing that not based upon a, a, a biblical standard of justice. They're doing it based upon their own personal idea about what is just. Furthermore, and you've heard Daryl and I both talk about this, it's often based upon the narratology. By now, you should have that word down pat, right? It's based upon the narratology of culture, the pervasive narrative of the culture. Rather than spending a ton of time on social justice, because you see it everywhere. You see it in people who, who are engaged in, in Facebook posts. You see it in major headlines you know, and, 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 and the like. Rather than spending a lot of time on that, I first want to begin by looking at the word justice and examining it as, as, as it's applied biblically uh, and examining it in light of what a believer should think about justice. And then we'll circle back on the bigger picture. As it pertains to biblical justice, we want to begin by examining God's nature. If you're going to examine biblical justice, you have to begin by understanding the nature of God, the attributes of God. Let me give you three attributes under the idea of justice. I want to give you three attributes of God that you must think about when you think about justice. Number one, that God is just. We're going to unpack these. I want to give you three major headings, that God is is just. Number two, that God is sovereign, that God is sovereign. And number three, that God is holy, that God is holy. First of all, God is just. If we're to begin to understand biblical justice, we must understand the justice of God or that God is indeed just in the same way that God is love. In the same way that, that Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6, God is just. In Scripture, God's justice is most often used to express the righteousness of God. Often you hear righteousness and holiness in the Scripture exchanged. They're, they're equally identifiable. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. Often these are used interchangeably. Scripture says it this way in Psalm 89, verses 13 and 14. Uh, the, the psalmist writes this, quote, You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So what do we have here? We have a, a holy God who the psalmist is acknowledging is righteous and, he, and his, 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 uh, uh, he's founded upon, he, he's, uh, he's found, the, the foundation rather of his throne is justice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So understanding biblical justice begins with an understanding that God is just. He's not creating justice separate and apart from who he is. His character, his nature is just. To be clear about this point, the justice of God is, is not arbitrary. God's justice is not arbitrary, meaning that it is not based upon some random whim that's separate from reason. The justice of God is, is not subjective, Meaning it is, it is equally applied throughout the whole of creation. The, the, justif, the, the justice of God is not partial. Meaning that it is not, a, it is not applied in greater and lesser degrees to some people and, to, and not to others. Again, this bears repeating. The justice of God is, is, is or the words rather, about God's justice are interchangeable. Righteousness, holiness, justice. 
So first, to understand biblical justice, we must understand God is just. Second, we must understand that God is sovereign. We must understand that God is sovereign. The justice of God presupposes, presumes that he's sovereign. The the nature of the justice of God presumes that he is sovereign over all things, that he sees all things and knows all things and therefore will rightly apply the justice due those who need to receive it. So the justice of God assumes his sovereignty. In his sovereignty reside two attributes that are essential components to understanding biblical justice. Let me give you those two components. They are his omnipotence and his omniscience. I've kind of mentioned that. God's attribute of omnipotence, meaning that he's all-powerful and by definition able to punish evildoers. That's that's an important aspect of his character, of an attribute of God that is incredibly important for the purpose of of him uh, exacting justice in, in 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 a proper and appropriate way. In addition to that, God is omnipotent. Meaning, meaning he's all-powerful, or, or rather uh, omniscient. That's what I meant to say, omniscient, meaning he's all-knowledgeable and by definition able to know the evil that is done with mankind. So in his, in his sovereignty, two attributes, his omnipotence, his omniscience. In his omnipotence, he's powerful and able to punish. In his omniscience, he knows the evil that's being done. I think the issue with today's social justician, one, their, their worldview is devoid of God to begin with. Secondarily, those who do have a biblical worldview, a worldview that includes God in it, if you're a believer, an evangelical who's uh, desiring to connect with social justice, your thought process is, well, I, I know God's all powerful, but maybe he needs some help. Maybe he didn't see the evil that was done a uh, uh, hundred years ago. Maybe he didn't see the evil of, of Jim Crow. Maybe he was unable to do anything. I, I've got I've to kind of help him out. What it acknowledges is, is the, the low view of God that you have if you're subscribing to the idea that, that there's a need for social justice. Let's go back to scripture to anchor the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty by definition means that God is in divine control over everything. Matthew 10, 29 verses, uh, Matthew 10, 29, uh, uh, 10 verses 29 through 30. I'm getting tongue tied. It says this, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in him, in God, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Psalm 19, 1 through 6, probably my favorite verse of scripture to unpack the majesty, the beauty of God's sovereignty. It says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun. It's the power of the sovereignty of God. All of creation expresses the sovereignty of God. God is holy. Thirdly, God is holy. One of the attributes... Of God that scripture makes plain is that he is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. We worship a a thrice holy God. Again, a favorite passage of mine, probably of yours, is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, which read this way. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, 
holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah exposed to the holiness of God, recognized the the very thing that we should all recognize when we encounter the holiness of God. It is that God is holy and you and I are not. Verse five reads this way as Isaiah understands where he is, the holiness that he's experiencing. He says, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the position that that Isaiah finds himself in when he encounters the holiness of God. When he encounters the righteousness of God. When he encounters the justice of God. It is a mirror that causes him to reflect upon his wretchedness. And he declares out loud, woe is me, for I'm a man undone. Now, if I asked you to think about our current environment, our current situation where the word justice is being attached to every idea, do you get a sense that, that when, when justice is completely looked at with, with open eyes and full face, that what's actually taking place is there's a self-examination that causes us to look at our own hearts and be broken? Or is justice simply used as an opportunity to, to, to look at others and to feel yourself superior than someone else and to point the finger to say, see, here's where you messed up. True justice, biblical justice, should cause us to examine our own hearts and recognize our own sinful condition before a thrice holy God. So what do we have so far? We have that we understand that to understand biblical justice, we have three things that God is just, that God is sovereign, and that God is holy. Under the sovereignty of God, we have two attributes of God, God's omnipotence and his omniscience. Next, if we really want to understand biblical justice, we need to understand something about man, that man is sinful. I alluded to that in my comments earlier, that man is sinful. And while they're in this current culture, right, when we begin to go out and have conversations with our friends and given the the nature of of where we've been the last day and a half, two days, we have to explain to culture who is man or what is a man. We have to explain what sin is because people have no idea. They've got, they've got certain pastors who are saying, oh, you know what? I don't, I don't really talk about sin. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a downer. I'd, I'd rather talk about mistakes. Lightening the, uh, the, their desire is to lighten what is a weighty matter, to ignore, to minimize what is weighty, and that is our sin. So let's talk about who man is. I did that earlier by pointing you to Genesis 1.27. He creates, God creates man in his own image, the imago Dei, in his own likeness. He creates male and female. Genesis 2.18, and then the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a, fit, a helper fit for him. Genesis 2.21, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his rib, closed up its place with flesh. And, and with the rib, the Lord God made and formed and shaped a woman and brought her to the man. The man said at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. Verse 24, therefore a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. You've heard me reference Acts 17, 26, and he made from one man every, every, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling. My hope would be, if nothing more, that you leave here with having memorized those verses that we've given you to arm you and equip you to have the right kinds of conversations about definitions that culture is purposely ignoring, right? What they're doing is what Scripture says. They're suppressing the truth that they know in unrighteousness, Romans 1, 18 through 22. So when we say we, when we talk about the word man in this context, we're talking about male, a man, right? If we're talking about mankind, we're talking about male and female, mankind, right? 
of the same kind. When we talk about sin, I thought Daryl did a fantastic job of unpacking the nature of sin. First John 3, 4 says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So, so when we see lawlessness in our streets, we're not shocked or surprised, but because we understand and recognize that man is sinful. We for sure don't engage in the process, especially those who, who are, are, are leaders in, 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 uh, in culture, uh, pastors in particular, who are going out to engage in the lawlessness. We saw that when the BLM riots were taking place. We watched pastor after pastor feel like he had to connect with someone else and went out into the streets during a, a BLM riot or, or, or a protest in an effort to connect with culture. I don't see that anywhere in the pages of Scripture. I could make a case for the opposite, but I won't do that for the sake of time. James chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it, fails to do it, it is sin for him. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I've defined man. I've also defined sin. And at this point, we must examine the error of the culture. I want to turn the page because we we understand that, that the nature of man is that he is sinful, that God is not, that God is holy, that God is sovereign, right? That God is just and man is not. And so it's with those two components that we can have a clear picture of justice. And when we do, we understand that justice must first reach you and me. That as a result of the justice of God, what I rightly deserve before a thrice holy God is death. I just read it to you that the, uh, from uh, Romans, rather, Romans 6.23, that the wages of our sin is death. What you and I rightly deserve for our sin against a holy God is death. And it is with that understanding that I then approach Every other issue, situation, and culture. I'm the, the, Paul would say he was the chief of sinners. Understood this. But again, you don't get the sense that there's any understanding or, or, or a recognition of that by the social justician. Everywhere we turn, again, in secular culture, there's a, there's a cultural war taking place, whether it's the, the gender binary of, of male and female, uh, whether it's, it's, it's the war on, on, on race and, and, uh, and ethnicity. Every facet of life seems to be engaged in this kind of outright war. What it is is the culture is engaged in a, in a perpetual Genesis 3 overthrow, right? They're asking the question, did God really say and if not, then I, 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 first I'm going to ignore God and I'm going to d- dictate how my life will be lived out. Well, Scripture is clear on this as well. I alluded to it earlier. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23 read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because he has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the beginning of the world, so that men are without excuse. I want to pause here and examine that the culture is attempting to abandon the idea that even individuals can be created in the image of God. You heard me walk through that earlier. We've got everything, everything that you can imagine militating against the order of God. Daily now, we're bombarded with coalitions of oppressed groups, from black lives mattering to the LGBTQIA2S+, the indigenous people, immigrants, migrant workers, the list goes on and on. And while all of us have have been newly exposed, that tomorrow when you wake up, there'll be a a new uh, class of oppressed people for which we now have to acknowledge the historic wrongs that were done to them so that we can be ready to to, to engage in in kind of a a kowtow that the the culture will frame for us. It was Vody Bakum when he delivered a, a talk uh, a while back, there was a, a, a wonderful excerpt that I want to share with you because I think it's important for us to, to understand the nature of what we're dealing with when we think about culture and its strive for social 
justice. We understand biblical justice, that that God is sovereign, that God is just, that God is holy. We understand the nature of our sinful condition before a holy God, and that gives us a, a right picture, a right framework for how we understand biblical justice and how it should be merited out to you and me. If I got what I deserved... I would go straight to hell. With me, for me, they, they would wrap me up with pour gasoline on me because I, I need that kind of, kind of impact for, for, the, for the manner in which I've sinned. I, like Paul, am the chief of sinners. But when we turn the page and begin to look at social justice, that idea is very different. And it begins with a different framework. There's a different idea that surrounds it. Again, Bodhi Bakum explains that idea very well when he says that, that all, of, all of our lives are, are, are driven by a particular narrative, a meta-narrative. You've heard of narratology? All of us have a storyline about, about how life uh, began. And when we do, we, we have to answer a few questions. He posited this idea, and it's, it's, it's really not unique to, to, to Dr. Bakum. It's actually the idea that, that, that all of us have to, have to wrestle with, that philosophy has wrestled with for, for centuries, for millennia. And the questions are these, who am I? Second question is, why am I here? The third question is, what is wrong with the world? And the fourth question is, how do I make things right? When, when, when I heard Dr. Bauckham unpack these and, and he would explain to this group, he answered those questions this way. He said that the, the Christian would answer these questions this way. Who am I? Well, I'm the crown jewel of the creation of God, created in his image and likeness. Why am I here? Well, I'm here to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What's wrong with the world? I am what's wrong with the world. I'm sinful, fallen, and I need a savior. And finally, how do I make things right? I I, I don't make things right. Christ has entered the world and has done what I cannot do. Therefore, I repent of my sin and I place my faith in Christ. These are the questions that, that, that everyone is driven to ask and answer. And as, as, as Dr. Bauckham unpacked these for a group, I would encourage you, if you get an opportunity, to go online and to, and to look this up uh, and watch him do it. He spent about an hour and a half on just this area. It's very helpful and beneficial. I'm just giving you an excerpt of that, uh, that portion of his talk. He said the social justician, however, who's appealing to critical race theory, intersectionality, Black liberation theology and the social gospel. Of course, I added a couple of extras in there. He didn't have, actually have all of that. I added a few. They would answer these questions this way. Who am I? Well, I'm the victim of an oppressed group of people. Why am I here? I'm here as the result of how others have taken advantage of me and have subjugated my people. What's wrong with the world? Well, the oppressor, the patriarchy, the white man, the cisgendered, the heteronormative, the heterosexuals, the able-bodied, capitalism, racism, the Western nuclear family structure, you name it. The list goes on and on and on. How do I make things right? For the social justician, they respond, well, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight to tear down the structures that have oppressed me and thereby receive social justice. Now, when you compare those, those two ideas, biblical justice, an understanding of the holiness of God, an understanding of the sovereignty of God, understanding of the justice of God, when you think about the fact that man is sinful and what he rightly deserves for the sins that he's committed against the holy God is hell, and it causes great reflection in the heart of that individual for the purpose of having them bow the knee, repent of sin, and place their faith in Christ. Biblical justice is designed for that purpose. Social justice, on the other hand, is designed for the complete opposite. It's for me, uh, uh, an oppressed people group, to feel righteous, to have my own self-righteousness. From a standpoint of sin, I don't see sin. If I see sin, it's out there. It's not in here. And as a result, I'm going to go, I'm going to fight I've got to go tear that system down. Anyone who's, who understands biblical justice would never, by any stretch of the imagination, appeal to social 
justice. What the social justician is attempting to do is they're attempting to remake what God has already created. They, the social justician, they're offering their own form of utopia. By the way, if you ever go look up the the word utopia, it actually means a, a, a place to nowhere. Literally means a place to nowhere. But the promise of utopia has been with us for thousands of years. D- Daryl covered it in, in two very lengthy, detailed sessions where he walked through how the Marxian ideology has, has, an, has eschatological uh, uh, ideas, eschatological, the study of end times, the idea that, that they're going to end the structures that we see in, in an effort to recreate something new in their own image and in their own liking. This is something that we've, we must reject. This is something that we all must identify, know, and with crystal clarity, when we engage in conversations with others, have the biblical framework by which to expo- explain to people what justice actually is and how true justice, justice that's, that's examined against the backdrop of the word of God, should be used as a mirror that causes us to look at our own hearts and know how depraved and corrupt we actually are and to be broken about that so that we bow the knee to Christ. As a result, thereafter, that mirror then becomes a window, a window through which we understand what's happening out there. It's not that we don't call evil evil or that we begin calling evil good. We still call it evil, recognizing apart from Christ, that same evil out there is the same evil that would be in here. Biblical justice is designed to bring you to the cross of Christ. Social justice is a tragic road to hell. They keep using words like systemic. You hear the word systemic, that, 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 that things are, we, we experience systemic racism. This is systemic. That is systemic. I thought, again, Daryl did a fantastic job of explaining whenever you deal with something that's systemic, that means it's throughout the whole system, it's throughout the whole of structure. The only thing that is systemic that we can understand with crystal clarity is the sin that permeates the hearts of every single human being here. I can without question declare that everyone in here is a sinner. I don't even have to know you. I simply know what God's word declares. And if you were honest about your own condition, you would say, yep, that's me. I don't do that from a standpoint of condemnation. I do that from a standpoint of declaration. It's the truth of what God says in his word. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Fortunately, the, 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 the scripture doesn't end there. We have the opportunity, based upon the finished work of Christ, to experience eternal life. But we need to apply that to our lives. In our current culture, again, we hear the word systemic applied to racism. In order, to be, in order for something to be systemic, it therefore must apply to, apply to all things equally. By definition, something is systemic if it affects the whole rather than just the parts. As it pertains to the overuse of the word systemic racism, I will, uh, I will appeal to a quote by the great swordsman, Anigo Montoya, <laughs> from the movie The Princess Bride. He said, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Now, I, I want to be clear, and, and Daryl and I are, are always doing this wherever we go. Um, we often get tagged with the idea that, you know, we ignore history. We ignore uh, slavery. We ignore Jim Crow. We ignore the real problems that took place historically and in the modern day. Darrell mentioned during his talk that apart from theology, the, the, the biggest section of his library, and I've been at his office, I've seen the books that are on his shelf that relate to the issue of slavery. I would, I would encourage anyone who would lay the charge, he doesn't know or hadn't done his homework in that area, I wouldn't try to test the brother in that area. <laughs> because I promise you, he's probably spent more time reading about that than most people. We had an episode uh, 
where we addressed the issue of reparations. Uh, and it was one that I, I'll remember because of how powerful that episode actually was. During that episode, um, Daryl actually walked through slave narrative. I don't know if you've ever been exposed to slave narrative. Um, it, it is, it is the, 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 the circumstance of the slave written in their own vernacular. And so you would hear him read what the slaves went through. It was the most, if, if you get a chance to listen to it, bring a box of tissue. It is the most heart-wrenching episode I think we've ever done. Because you hear the words of a slave girl who had just been beaten brutally by her master. As she writes out, or as, she's, as, as someone's taking down what she's saying about the interaction. I guarantee you won't be able to listen to that without losing it. I share that with you simply to say, we look with open eyes and full face at these kinds of issues. We don't shy away from it. But here's what we've done. We understand before we call for some form of, of justice that in my own heart is the same kind of wickedness that was in the slave owner's heart. And that apart from the the gospel of Christ, apart from the sovereign work of God in my life to transform my heart, that would be me. So we don't wash over any of that. At the same time, we don't ignore the, the pain, the hurt, and the true suffering that has taken place. Because we too have family members and loved ones and people we know who are all engaged in this human condition called the sinful fallen world. And we see real hurt and real pain and we identify with that because we recognize image bearers of God created in his image and likeness are just like us. And that all of us to some degree or another are, are, are reeling with this fallen condition that we all find ourselves in. For example, back in the day, I'll name a few things for slaves and what they encountered. There were movement restrictions. There were, were most regions, uh, were, were most regions of, of, of the slave environment or, or the, uh, the part of the, the, the culture uh, in the South where slaves were. When they were away from plantations or out to cities, they had to have a, a pass that they were given by their master in order to go to a certain place or a location. Many towns and, and slave states, they needed a slave tag, a small copper badge that, that they wore in an effort to allow them to move about. There were marriage restrictions. Most, most of these were placed upon en, enslaved people. They, had, they, they did not have rights to marry. They were told that you can only marry this one and only marry that one. And certain slaves were given the responsibility to impregnate specific women because of the, 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 their physical shape or size. And, and this for them was a demoralizing condition for them to be in. There were slave patrols in the, in the, in the dependent, that slave dependent portions of North America, varying degrees of legal authority and packed, backed uh, uh, patrols by plantations. What plantation owners would do is they would go to the North. They would pay a certain police department to, to find runaway slaves in an effort to bring them back to an area of the country where they knew that, that the slave owner was. There were education restrictions. There are all kinds of issues, but here's the understanding that we need to have. Sin is systemic. We shouldn't be surprised when we hear these kinds of atrocities that have happened to people during the course of all of human history. Why? Well, because sin is systemic. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 makes this abundantly clear as Paul explains, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The beauty of what Christ has done is that he is, he's given us a new opportunity, right? We've been given, basically in verse 13, it says, for sin indeed was in the world before there was the law but, but, and was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were still sinning. Romans five seventeen explains what Christ did this way. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
If, if you have a, have a problem with, with the systemic nature of sin on the basis of what Adam did, you're definitely going to have a problem on, of what Christ did. Because what he does affects us systemically for those who are in Christ. We experience the free grace of God, the forgiveness of our sin, a payment of a debt that we could not repay. Romans 8.1 expresses it this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. You see, the gospel is good news. It is good news that those who were condemned to death for their sins, for our sins against God, have been forgiven by the blood of Christ. And this is a grace upon grace that none of us deserve. David understood the magnitude of God's grace when he wrote in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Here, David understands with crystal clarity the justice of God. And what does he do? He asks for mercy. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in my inward being. and You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. If we want to talk about privilege, you and I, believers in Christ, have more privilege than anyone in the world. The beauty of that truth is that that privilege is available to those who would repent of their sin and place their full faith in Jesus Christ. The beauty of biblical justice is that it points you to Christ The tragedy of social justice is it puffs up the individual as they're on their way to hell. It's imperative that we who are believers in Christ present the message of the gospel. My hope and prayer would be that as we depart from here in just a few hours that we never forget the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of biblical justice what it points us to, and who we can proclaim as a result. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.